Part Sixteen of the Story of Mary MacLean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Story of Mary MacLean by Mary MacLean, Part Sixteen. April Tenth. I have a sense of humor that partakes in the divine in life for there are things even in this chaotic irony that are divine. My genius is not divine. My patheticness is not divine. My philosophy is not divine. Nor my originality, nor my audacity of thought. These are peculiarly of the earth. But my sense of humor. It is humor that is far too deep to admit of laughter. It is humor that makes my heart melt with a high, unequaled sense of pleasure, and ripple down through my body like old yellow wine. A rare tone in a person's voice, a densely wrathful expression in a pair of slate-colored eyes, a fine, fine shade of comparison and contrast between a word in a conversation and an angle-worm pattern in a calico dressing-jacket. These are things that make me conscious of divine emotion. One day last summer an Italian peddler woman stopped at the back door and rested herself. I stood in the doorway, and the peddler woman and I talked. She had a dirty white handkerchief tied over her head, as all Italian peddler women do, and she had a telescope valise filled with garters and hairpins and soap and combs and pencils and china buttons on blue cards and bean-shooters and tacks and dream-books and mouth-organs and green glass beads and jews-harps. There is something fascinating about a peddler woman's telescope valise. This peddler woman wore a black sateen wrapper and an ancient cape. She said that she would like to stop and rest a while, and I told her she might. I had always wanted to talk to a peddler woman, and my mother never would allow one in the house. "'Is it nice to be a peddler?' I asked her. "'It ain't bad,' replied the peddler woman. "'Do you make a great deal of money?' I next inquired. "'Sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't.' said the woman. She spoke with an accent that, while it sounded Italian, still showed unmistakably that she had lived in Butte. "'Well, do you make just enough to live on, or have you saved some money?' I asked. "'I got four hundred dollars in the bank,' she replied. "'I've been peddling eight years.' Eight years of trampling around in all kinds of weather,' I said. "'Your philosophy must be peripatetic, too.' "'Haven't you ever had rheumatism in your knees?' "'I got rheumatism in every joint in my body,' said the woman. "'I have to lay off sometimes.' "'Have you a husband?' I wished to know. "'I had a man, oh, yes,' said the peddler woman. "'And where is he?' "'Back home, in Italy.' "'Why doesn't he come out here and work for you?' I asked. "'Yes, why don't he?' said the woman. "'Dad a man, he's dem lucky when he can get enough to eat, he is.' "'Why don't you send him some money to pay his way out, since you've saved so much?' I inquired. "'Holy God!' said the peddler woman. "'I work hard for dad a money. I save every cent. I ain't going now to throw it away, I ain't. Dad a man, he's all right where he is. He is.' "'What did you marry him for?' I asked. The peddler woman looked at me with that look which seems to convey the information that curiosity once killed a cat.' "'For what?' I persisted. "'For love?' "'I marry him when I was young girl, 
and he was young too. Yes, but what did you do it for? Was he awfully nice, and did he say awfully sweet things to you? He was dem sweet, oh yes, said the peddler woman. She grinned. And I was young. And you liked it when you were young and he was sweet, didn't you? Yes, I guess so. I was young, she answered. The fact that one is young seems to imply, in the Italian peddler mind, a lacking in some essential points. "'And don't you like your man now?' I asked. "'Dad man, he's all right in Italy, he is,' replied the woman. "'Well,' I observed, "'if I had a man who had been dem sweet once, when I had been young, but who was not sweet any more, I think I should leave him in Italy, too.' "'You'll get a man some day soon.' said the peddler woman. I was interested to know that. They all do, oh yes, she said. But you likely to be better off peddlin', I tell ya. Yes, I think it would be amusing to be a peddler for a while, I said. But I should want the man, too, as long as he was dem sweet. The peddler woman picked up the telescope valise. Yes, she remarked. A man, he's sweet two days, three days, den, holy God, he never work, he get a drunk, he make a rough house, he raise hell. The peddler woman nodded at me and limped out of the yard. The telescope valise was heavy. When she walked, every muscle in her body seemed to be pressed into service. She had a heavy, solid look. She seemed as though she might weigh three hundred pounds, though she was not large. The afternoon sun shone down brightly on her dirty white handkerchief, on her brown, comely face on her brown, brass-ringed hands, on her black, sateen wrapper, on her ancient cape. As I watched her out of sight, I thought to myself, two days, three days, then holy God, he never work, he get a drunk, he make a rough house, he raise hell. I was conscious of an intense humor that was so far beyond laughter that it was too deep even for tears. But I felt tears vaguely, as I watched the peddler woman limping up the road. It was not pathos. It was humor. Humor. My emotion was one of vivid pleasure. Pleasure at the sight of the woman, and at the telescope valise, and at her conversation supplemented by my own. This emotion is divine, and I cannot grasp it. As I looked after the Italian peddler woman, it came to me with sudden force that the earth is only the earth, but that it is touched here and there brilliantly with divine fingers. Long and often, as I've sat in intense silent passion, and gazed at the red, red sunset sky, I have never then felt this sense of the divine. It comes only through humor. It comes only with things like an Italian peddler woman in a black sateen wrapper and an ancient cape. My soul, how heavily it goes! Life is a journeying up a springtime hill. And at the top we wonder why we are there. Have mercy on me, I implore, in a dull idea that the journey is so long, so long, and a human being is less than an atom. The solid heavy figure of an Italian peddler woman with a telescope valise, limping away in the afternoon sunshine, is more convincing of the things that are than would be the sound of the wailing of legions of lost souls, could it be heard. For the world must be amused, and the world's wind listeth as it bloweth.
April 11th. I write a great many letters to the dear anemone lady. I send some of them to her, and others I keep to read myself. I like to read letters that I have written, particularly that I have written to her. This is a letter that I wrote two days ago to my one friend. To you. And don't you know, my dearest, my friendship with you contains other things. It contains infatuation and worship and bewitchment and idolatry and a tiny altar in my soul chamber whereupon is burning sweet incense in a little dish of blue and gold. Yes, all of these. My life is made up of many outpourings. All the outpourings have one point of coming together. You are the point of coming together. There is no other. You are the anemone lady. You are the one whom I may love. To think that the world contains one beautiful human being for me to love. It is wonderful. My life is longing for the sight of you. My senses are aching for lack of an anemone to diffuse itself among them. A year ago, when you were in the high school, often I used to go over there when you would be going home, so that my life could be made momentarily replete by the sight of you. You didn't know I was there, only a few times when I spoke to you. And now it is that I remember you. Oh, my dearest, you are the only one in the world. We are two women. You do not love me, but I love you. You have been wonderfully, beautifully kind to me. You are the only one who has ever been kind to me. There is something delirious in this, something of the nameless quantity. It is old grief and woe to live nineteen years, and to remember no person ever to have been kind. But what is it, do you think, at the end of nineteen years, to come at last upon one who is wonderfully, beautifully kind? Those persons who have had someone always to be kind to them can never remotely imagine how this feels. Sometimes, in these spring days, when I walk miles down into the country, to the little wet gulch of the sweet flags, I wonder why it is that this thing does not make me happy. She is wonderfully, beautifully kind, I say to myself, and she is the anemone lady. She is wondrously kind, and though she's gone, nothing can ever change that. But I am not happy. Oh, my one friend, what is the matter with me? What is this feeling? Why am I not happy? But how can you know? You are beautiful. I am a small, vile creature. Always I wake to this fact when I think of the anemone lady. I am not good. But you are kind to me. You are kind to me. You are kind to me. You have written me two letters. The anemone lady came down from her high places and wrote me two letters. It is said that God is somewhere. It may be so. But God has never come down from his high places to write me two letters. Dear, do you see? You are the only one in the world. Mary MacLean April 12th Oh, the dreariness, the nothingness! Day after day, week after week. It is dull and gray and weary. It is dull, dull, dull. No one loves me the least in the world. My life is dreary, he cometh not. I am unhappy, unhappy. It rains, 
The blue sky is weeping, but it is not weeping because I am unhappy. I hate the blue sky, and the rain, and the wet ground, and everything. This morning I walked far away over the sand, and these things made me think they loved me, and that I loved them. But they fooled me. Everything fools me. I am a fool. No one loves me. There are people here, but no one loves me. No one understands. No one cares. It is I and the barrenness. It is I, young and all alone. Pitiful heaven! But no, heaven is not pitiful. Heaven also has fooled me, more than once. There is something for everyone that I have ever known, some tender thing. But what is there for me? What have I to remember out of the long years? The blue sky is weeping, but not for me. The rain is persistent and heavy as damnation. It falls on my mind and it maddens my mind. It falls on my soul and it hurts my soul. Everything hurts my soul. It falls on my heart and it warps the wood in my heart. Of womankind in nineteen years, a philosopher of the peripatetic school, a thief, a genius, a liar, and a fool, and unhappy and filled with anguish and hopeless despair, what is my life? Oh, what is there for me? There has always been nothing. There will always be nothing. There was a miserable, damnable, wretched, lonely childhood. Itself has passed, but the pain of it has not passed. The pain of it is with me and is added to the pain of now. It is pain that never lets itself be forgotten. The pain of the childhood was the pain of nothing. The pain of now is the pain of nothing. Oh, the pathetic burlesque tragedy of nothing! It is burlesque, but it is none the less tragedy. It is tragedy that eats its way inward. It is only I in the sand and barrenness. I have never a tender thing in my life. The sand and barrenness has never a grass blade. I want a human being to love me. I have need of it. I am starving to death for lack of it. Bitterest salt tears surge upward. Sobs are shaking themselves out from the depths. Oh, the salt is bitter. I might lay me down and weep all day and all night, and the salt would grow more and more bitter. But life in its nothingness is more bitter still. It is a burlesque tragedy that is the most tragic of all. It is an inward dying that never ends. It is the bitterness of death added to the bitterness of life. What hell is there like that of one weak little human being placed on the earth and left alone? There are people who live and enjoy, but my soul and I, we find life too bitter and too heavy to carry alone, too bitter and too heavy. Oh, that I and my soul might perish at this moment for ever! April 13th I am sitting writing out on my sand and barrenness. The sky is pale and faded now in the west, but a few minutes ago there was the same old-time, always-new miracle of roses and gold, and glints and gleams of silver and green, and a river in vermilions and purples, and lastly the dear, the beautiful, the red, red line. There also are heavy black shadows. 
I have given my heart into the keeping of this. And still, as always, I look at it, and feel it all with thrilling passion, and await the devil's coming. L'Envoi, October 28, 1901 And so, there you have my portrayal. It is the record of three months of nothingness. Those three months are very like the three months that preceded them, to be sure, and the three months that followed them, and like all the months that have come and gone with me since time was. There is never anything different. Nothing ever happens. Now I will send my portrayal into the wise, wide world. It may stop short at the publisher, or it may fall stillborn from the press or it may go farther indeed and be its own undoing. That's as may be. I will send it. What else is there for me if not this book? And oh, that someone may understand it! I am not good. I am not virtuous. I am not sympathetic. I am not generous. I am merely and above all a creature of intense, passionate feeling. I feel everything. It is my genius. It burns me like fire. My portrayal, in its analysis and egotism and bitterness, will surely be of interest to some, whether to that one alone who may understand it, or to some who have themselves been left alone, or to those three whom I, on three dreary days, asked for bread, and who each gave me a stone, and whom I do not forgive, for that is the bitterest thing of all. It may be to all of these. But none of them, nor any one, can know the feeling made of relief and pain and despair that comes over me at the thought of sending all this to the wise wide world. It is bits of my wooden heart broken off and given away. It is strings of amber beads taken from the fair neck of my soul. It is shining little gold coins from out of my mind's red leather purse. It is my little old life tragedy. It means everything to me. Do you see? It means everything to me. It will amuse you. It will arouse your interest. It will stir your curiosity. Some sorts of persons will find it ridiculous. It will puzzle you. But am I to suppose that it will also awaken compassion in cool, indifferent hearts? And will the sand and barrenness— look so unspeakably grey and dreary to coldly critical eyes as to mine? And shall my bitter little story fall easily and comfortably upon undisturbed ears and linger for an hour and be forgotten? Will the wise wide world itself give me in my outstretched hand a stone? End of Part 16 An End of the Story of Mary MacLean by Mary MacLean